podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another Love Tennis Podlet, where I'm going to start by apologising for a little technical outage over the last 24 hours or so. Um, many of you may have woken up on Tuesday hoping to listen to our full-length pod that included a look back at um, Stefan Tsitsipas and Holger Rune's match, a few others from that day, and also a preview of uh, Djokovic versus Nadal. Our platform, which is called Megaphone, they're the people who basically um, we upload our podcast to their platform and they distribute it to all the places that you get these podcasts. They suffered quite a serious outage. I think it was about 12 hours um, and it was really unfortunate for you and for us that it was just the 12 hours when that podcast was scheduled to come out. So I'm sorry if you had any problems playing the podcast. Um, Hopefully they are now all resolved. As far as I know, they have been resolved since about um, lunchtime UK on Tuesday. So um, if you do have any problems, I I was only really alerted to it. Not that there's anything I can do about it because someone texted me and said, I think your podcast has been uploaded wrong. And I said, I don't think I've made a mistake and then went to see if I'd made a mistake. I hadn't. Um, But yeah, apologies for that. I will crack on. It's uh, three in the morning here in Paris, which is two in the morning back in the UK, which is why it's just me, no Calvin, no George. Um, I've just literally got home about five minutes ago. I've had time to take my shoes off and open a beer, which is really going down very well. It's a Gallia Session IPA. It's a France Bière Challenge Médaille d'Argent, which is a silver medal winner. It's quite tasty. Um, I've got another one in the fridge. I'm sure that'll go down well as well. Um, Let's start at the end. Rafael Nadal beats Novak Djokovic in four sets. 6-2-4-6, I've been to a few of these matches, you know, these the classic rivalries, the Federer and Nadal's, the Nadal Djokovic's, the Murray Djokovic's. And every time you find yourself pretty quickly running out of words because this kind of baseline era, which describes the majority of it, at least in terms of Nadal, Djokovic and Murray, Federer obviously being a little bit different, the the matches have such a sort of titanic feel to them that it really is the only word you can find yourself really using. Epic, mammoth, marathon, and all of those words really applied to this match. It, it wasn't just that it took four hours and 12 minutes, which it did. And it wasn't just that it finished at 1.15am local time, which it did. It was just the points, the very points that they were playing felt so exhausting. When you started to think about what was going through both of their heads, you know, it's a question that often gets asked in press conferences. What was going through your head at this point? What was going through your head at this point? Um, At some points... Those players, well, Novak Djokovic said you don't want to know because he was having some very dark and angry thoughts about how he was playing. Um, but at one point I found myself watching one of these mammoth rallies and just breaking down every time one of them hit the ball what they're trying to achieve because it's not just 
right, I'm going to hit this topspin cross-court forehand into his backhand and then we'll see where we go from there. He's You're always thinking about your match plan, what you know his match plan will be, what he's done the previous 58 times you've played him, how that's usually turned out, whether you think he's fit or not, whether you think he's going to do this, that and the other. There's so much what... Oh, I've only ever really come across this in poker, but meta game, you know, which is the game within the game, the game just between the two of you, not just the game that you are playing, i.e. tennis. There's so much history that they always talk about that it must turn it into a complete level. You're just trying to think, what level's he on? Does he? How good does he think I am? Does he know that I can do this? Does he know that I might do that? And it was absolutely fascinating. Um, for the first set and a half, Nadal was imperious. I mean, you know, we we know what Nadal can do. We know that Roland Garros is a place. We talked a lot before about how playing at night might not suit him um, in the cooler, heavier conditions because, you know, his topspin forehand wouldn't have the same fizz. It would be easier to deal with. It wouldn't be bouncing up so high. Um, I, th- I feel like he adjusted for that a little bit. Um, he seemed to flatten the ball out a little bit in that first set. His forehand was still extremely potent in that opening set. I think he hit 12 winners in a set and 10 of them were forehands. Um, I I know he's obviously famous for his forehand and not really his backhand, but it was impressive the way he would open up the court for that shot. You know, against someone who traditionally is very hard to open up the court against. Djokovic, you know, conversely, and so often these tennis matches, when we sit down and think about them, are about trying to work out who is playing well and who is playing badly, and trying to work out to what extent that person was playing well, or quite simply they were just being given the opportunity to by the fact the other was playing badly. I think Djokovic gave Nadal a lot of opportunities. Um, his first serve percentage in that first set was really low. I think it was forty-eight percent. You know, which is Unless you're serving absolute bonds and every single one of those points you win, which, by the way, wasn't, even then, that's not necessarily a sustainable strategy. Um, He missed first serve on the first four break points that he faced. Um, He was broken on two of them. And it made such a difference. You know, there was one break point later on in the set where he made first serve and he didn't hit the winner until five or six shots down the line. But the whole rally was his because he had made that first serve. Um, I don't know what that comes down to. He, he didn't speak much in press afterwards, and certainly not about that. Um, he's obviously not had lots of competitive match practice this year. And, you know, if Calvin were here, I'm absolutely sure that he would say you can't substitute that. He is someone who says he likes competitive match practice. And he's also someone, well, I think, like everyone, you don't know what your body's going to do until you put yourself through it. And if you've not done it for a while, as he hasn't, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of it. And in that first, what, 11 games, nine of which he lost, I really didn't think I was watching the same Djokovic. He was placid. He was a bit passive in the way he was playing. He was being absolutely bullied by Rafa Nadal, quite frankly. Um, And he hasn't played probably in a match of that intensity, I would suggest, since the US Open final. 
which was obviously a hugely intense match for you know because he was going for the calendar year slam and you know we all you saw what happened to him when the crowd started chanting his name and he was sat down in the final changeover you know that was incredibly emotional and intense match but since then yeah sure i mean you know he won the title in paris and that i guess was a big deal of sorts and you know he went to tour finals and got to the semis there and then everything with australia but i just think he just hadn't had those matches the like of those matches you know all of his matches in previous rounds have been very straightforward um he's barely he's, he had one tie break but he's not dropped a set to this point so he just hasn't got that real intensity to him I, I suppose he won the title in rome but it's a little bit different it's not the same as having you know 20 or 1000 people mostly cheering against you and what i found weird and they were cheering against him for the most part what I found weird was that he didn't seem to use that, you know, positively. Anyone who read the piece I did with John McEnroe earlier in the week about McEnroe said that he found it very hard to use that energy positively, but that Novak does it better than anyone else, and almost all the time. What I found weird today is that he didn't, you know, as you sometimes see, Murray does it quite often where you'll just see him decide that he's going to get angry or something, or going to focus on something and use that to wind him up. And it's the same Tsitsipas said about Holger Rune, you know, he's someone who plays like he's got a problem all the time, you know, like, like something's up. And I think Djokovic is at his best when something's up. And that first set and a half, and, you know, he obviously came back and he won the second set. He fought back tremendously. But... You're working from a big, you know, you're working from 10 yards behind. So you've got to play 10 yards better than your opponent to make up for that slow start. Um, the the game at 3-2 in the second set where Djokovic had gone 3-love down, um, having already been a set down, and it kind of looked like the match might just disappear and we would, we would all be in bed quite early. Uh, which wouldn't have been completely uh, unwelcome. It it just didn't. Um, the first game of that set was 13 minutes on the Djokovic serve, and he was broken. And Nadal then held to love and then broke him again. And then you've got this epic game at 2-3 when Djokovic is just broken back for the first time and then held quickly. And then this 15-minute game in which... Nadal got as tight as I've ever seen him. Now, I know that Nadal gets tight, but boy, was he tight. I mean, at one point, he was bouncing the ball on the service line. He's dropped it. Like, he dropped it and nutmegged himself, and the ball boy had to come and get it and give it to him. And it was just like, gee, this is real pressure on Nadal. And then he double-faulted at Juice as well and you know, got himself out of trouble with a, a classic winner, really. But he felt it so much. And he did say he saved, I think, four break points. One with a cracking ace. He didn't hit many of those these days. Um, but eventually it told. And Djokovic broke back to make it 3-all. And then once Djokovic had won that second set, you know, I think Calvin said in our Love Tennis WhatsApp group, that's that, you know. 
this, it's a shame this game, this match is over now. Because, and I think we all agree, just as we all agreed that Djokovic would win in the first place. Um, but Nadal just found another level. Djokovic noted that he started every set really well, which I don't know if that's coincidence or deliberate or what, but I always think these great players do start well. Apologies for the drinking noises. This beer really is um, just lovely. and I'm trying to keep myself sane. And then, yeah, we, we came to, to the end of the match, um, frankly. Djokovic served for the fourth set, which would have taken us to a fifth. And in his words, then it's anybody's. And Nadal broke him. Um, I mean, you know, he's just like that. He's so incredibly clutch that he breaks at 5-4 when you're serving for the set. And, you know... It was also, it wasn't like, it was a long break, but it wasn't like he had lots of breakpoint opportunities. Like, I think he had one, and he then Djokovic produced a brilliant winner on a long rally, and then Nadal found it. And he, he his level of aggression in that game was so much higher. Like, there had been a lot of long rallies um, in the match up to that point, but he kind of took things into his own hands a little bit more. And he did step up the aggression. Um, interestingly, if you look at the the zero to four, the five to eight, and the nine plus rallies, um, Nadal dominated all of them. He was eight more than Djokovic on the zero to four, uh, three more than Djokovic on the five to eight, and seven more than Djokovic on the nine plus. I would suggest that, that nine plus stat is a lot as well, um, because he there were. A uh, total of 60, 75 rallies of nine shots or more, which is just insane when you think about it. I mean, you know, as usual, the numbers these guys put up are just ridiculous. But yeah, he, um, and then he played a brilliant tiebreak. He really did. Um, he went three love up quickly, hit a couple of winners, forced a couple of Djokovic on forced errors. And then, you know, he was 6 1 up all of a sudden and he blew three match points and then. You know, open up the court and punched a, a backhand winner onto the baseline, and and that was that. I mean, it was it was pretty remarkable, actually. I I've obviously never seen Nadal play at Running Garros in the flesh before these two weeks, and yeah, it was pretty special actually. The noise in that stadium, even though it was one in the morning, it was blimmin' cold. Um, I mean, I think it was probably only about twelve degrees, but. You've obviously been sat there for four hours and getting colder and colder, and it was quite breezy as well. And yeah, like credit to the crowd, most of them stayed to the end. Like that was quite something. And then yeah, gets over the line. Um, he talked afterwards quite candidly about his foot, as he has previously. He said something that made me think he's almost certainly not going to be at Wimbledon. You know, he said, "I'm not going to hide things, but." I'm also not going to come here and say a thing that I don't believe. I just don't necessarily want to talk about it lots. I'm going to be playing this tournament because we're doing the things to be ready to play this tournament, but I don't know what's going to happen after here. I have what I have here in the foot. If we're not able to find an improvement or a small solution on that, then it becomes super difficult for me. So that's it. And that made me think, you know, Rafa playing Wimbledon is always a bit of a crapshoot anyway, but I, th I think if it's really as bad as he says it is, I don't. I think he will be resting for the U.S. Open uh, rather than coming and playing on grass. But I, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that's my instinct anyway. 
Let's move on, shall we, to the other men's match today. Uh, I was on court for that as well. Alexander Verev against Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, pretty, pretty interesting match, really. The first, just because of what we learned about Carlos Alcaraz, which is that a that he is human. Um, he, John McEnroe for me summed it up best. He said, "It's the first time we've seen Alcaraz look his age." I thought that was spot on. He looked really lost. You know, he took him 30 games to get a break of serve. You know, he nicked the, the third set, and I say nicked because he, he broke at, what was it, 4-5? Or, yeah, exactly, to take the set. So he didn't even have to serve it out. And, you know, it just it felt like he had one plan, and he didn't necessarily know what to do when that plan failed. Um, you know, he, he fought. And he said, that's one thing I can take away from this is that I fought and I fought to the end. Um, and, you know, when Zverev served for the match at 5-4 in the fourth, he broke him back, you know, brilliantly. Um, there was a, a ret- you know, pretty much a return winner and then a clean winner off the sort of plus one. And, you know, he he showed a lot in that match in adversity. And sometimes I think that I learn not... It's a cliche to say you learn more out of adversity than success, but I think one learns more about a player when they lose in terms of how they lose. You know, we're not surprised to see a 19-year-old kid look a bit lost on court, but sometimes you are surprised when you see them not give it away. And, you know, he saved match points multiple times. He went to 9-7 in that final tie-break. And, you know, it pains me to give any credit to Alexander Zverev, but he did show a lot of guts and... You know, he will be a tough opponent for, for Rafa Nadal. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that yawn. It's very late. Um, I'm going to move on to the women. Uh, I'm going to end up basically spending this whole podcast having talked about um, Nadal and Djokovic, but I think that's reasonable because it's most fresh in my mind and it was epic. Um, since we're going backwards, let's get a Goff and Stevens. A really good match, this. Um, not quite the sort of uh, venom to the shot making that you'd necessarily like but certainly um, it was creative and there was a decent level to it I think Um, you know Goff and Stevens met the US Open last year and Goff uh, lost quite comfortably so from the perspective of we kind of want to see Coco Goff at the top of the women's game because she's a superstar and lots of people know who she is and she speaks really well Delighted to see her make that improvement. Um, and she she did, she said it herself, she said that the quarterfinal against Krajikova last year really hurt and that she learned a lot from that and that she wasn't going to let it happen again. Um, and I think it was a ding-dong match and probably because of that, you know, I think I think she broke Stevens six times in all um, and she was broken a couple of times herself. And I think that would have been emotionally quite challenging as a match. That's very up and down. There's lots going on there. And, you know, she served the match and got broken, which is always a painful thing. Um, and actually, fortunately, she then broke the very next game to, to seal it. So I think there's a lot to be said. that This is a massive learning kind of tournament for Coco Goff. And I was really impressed by her. All right, Sloane Stevens isn't the best player in the world, and she's not seeded, and 
she hadn't won in five when she came to Roland Garros, but she did get to the quarterfinals, so she was doing something right. Uh, there are still some concerns with Goff, like, you know, there were six double faults, I think she served today, which, you know, clearly is a, a little bit of a concern. Um, and there were a pretty sizable number of unforced errors, uh, albeit, you know, fewer than Stevens, but, you know, that is still something that you'd you'd want to cut out. Um, I think she has got an awful lot to her game. I don't think she can beat Shvantec, but I'd like to think she can have a good go. Uh, and then finally, Martina Trevisan upsetting Leila Fernandez. Now, it, it looked like an upset at the time. Um, it, uh, people said to me on Twitter, she's injured, she's on one leg. Of course, Leila Fernandez is losing. Well, she won a second set tiebreak on one leg, so she can't have been that injured. Uh, albeit, she said, uh, well, she was supposed to come in for press afterwards, and then it was announced that her press engagements were cancelled because the medical team had said her injury was too severe. It was a right foot injury. Um, I, I don't want to be cynical about it. If you've got a right foot injury that is so severe that you can't come and do press, then that must be really damn serious, or you really don't want to do press. Because, you know, let's face it, she, she said she felt it before the match. They sent through some flash quotes. Um, and, like, she played through it. So, I, I don't know. I'm not casting aspersions. I'm just saying I don't really understand this injury wholly. And I, I guess I'm trying to be optimistic, actually, in a weird way. I hope it's not that bad, because I think Leila Fernandez is great. And I think I want her playing as much as possible. I'd love to see her on the grass. But um, I don't know how likely that is now, if that's a, a really bad injury. So Trevor Sang off in that semi-final. Um, I think Goff will take care of her. Don't get me wrong, Trevor Sand played really well and is a good player. She, you know, George will tell you how good she is because he has been backing her for a while. You know, she's got a great forehand. Um, and she she did show nerves. Like, you know, she wasn't hugely clutch. Um, she did serve for the match in the second set and got broken and eventually got over the line in the third, but... You know, we'll forgive her that. It's, her first, it's only a second Grand Slam quarterfinal and she lost the first one two years ago. So maybe a grounds for nerves. Just briefly looking ahead to tomorrow, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, a dead day to a certain extent. Uh, could have been over against Kasatkina, the all-Russian semi-finals first up, followed by Iga Shontek against Jessica Pagula. Um, I've listed this as my upset watch because I think it's the most likely upset in the day, I don't think it's terribly likely. Um, Jess Pecula is a good player. She has beaten Shontek before, but that was in 2019. I just think that the, the 2019 Shontek is basically a completely different person and player. So there were signs. I think if, if Zheng Quinn Wen had stayed fit um, or well, then I think she might have beaten her. So there's definitely an opportunity there, but I don't know. I can't really see it. Um, we're then going to go to Rublev Chilic. It's a match I think Chilic might actually win. Rublev not playing brilliantly. Let off the hook massively by Yannick Sinner's injury. Um, struggled against Christian Garin, which I, you know, Garin's a good player and he's a hard guy to play on clay. So, you know, I wouldn't take too much from that. But nevertheless, uh, I think Chilic got a great chance. He's playing brilliantly and he blew Medvedev away. And then finally, Runa Rood. The, uh, the All-Scandinavian Clash, uh, which I think will be an exciting one. I think Rude will win, um, 
But, you know, they're both players worth watching and players who will feature at this stage of Roland Garros again one day. Um, thanks very much for listening. I apologise if I've not been word perfect because it is now half past three here in Paris. Um, we'll hope you'll be back tomorrow at a slightly more reasonable hour uh, to talk about everything that's happened there and also look forward to the women's semi-finals, which we will have decided by then. But in the meantime, take care and thank you for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.